Well, six to nine months ago, if I had mentioned to you the phrase social distancing, probably no one in this room would have a clue what I was talking about. But now, based on everything that we've experienced in recent weeks, everyone knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? In fact, you could probably give me the details of exactly what social distancing is intended to be. We have you spaced out this morning, and uh, when you go to a store, you stand in line. So let me ask you, what is the distance that they tell us we need to keep for social distancing practices? Six feet, everybody knows. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how something that was completely foreign to us six months ago has now become a cultural norm? We all know what that's about. Originally, it was put in place, as we know, to protect our communities. It was a strategy to stop the progression of a potentially deadly virus. At its core, social distancing was intended to be kind of an act of love, not a means of rejection. It's a way in which we care for one another. But would it surprise you to know that social distancing is actually in the Bible? Does that surprise you? It is, and it's in our passage this morning, and the context is very different, but the principle is still the same. It's a means of protection for those within, specifically, the church community. Like we see in our world today, it's intended to stop the spread of a potentially deadly issue. And at its core, it is an act of love, not a means of rejecting. It's how the Bible actually instructs us to care for one another. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open up your word, uh, we want to just come to you with humble hearts. We know that when Paul wrote these letters inspired by your spirit to a people who lived in Thessalonica hundreds and thousands of years ago, that those very same truths would need to be heard and received by the church at Melanie Park this morning. And the truth that they heard is just as relevant to us as it was to them. And so, Lord, as we open up this word, I pray that we have open hearts and open minds to be shaped and molded into who you've called us to be as your people. And may we understand that even just a little bit more clearly this morning as we spend time in your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So we will finish up our study of Thessalonians this morning. So um, if you haven't been with us, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And if you want to follow along with me, you can uh, look at verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6. And Paul writes and says this, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. And Paul closes out this letter, interestingly, with the command. And he wants us to understand that this command is a biblical mandate. It's not his personal opinion. It's not good advice. It's a biblical mandate 
And the reason we know that's true is because of the words he uses when he says, I give this to you in the name of the Lord. So this command comes with divine authority. And this command is intended to be given to the body of Christ as a whole, the church. It's part of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's a command that highlights the importance of social distancing. He says, keep aloof. Or another way to say the same thing is separate yourself from every brother who leads an unruly life. I want you to notice right up from the beginning, this is a brother or a sister. Either way, there's somebody who is a part of God's family because they claim to follow Christ. But the problem is how they live doesn't match with what they say. Paul describes it as an unruly life. Some translations say undisciplined or walking in idleness, but they all describe someone whose conduct is marked by compromise. They are willfully choosing to live outside the boundary of biblical norms. Like many in our world today, perhaps they just want to be different. They want to break with tradition and kind of do their own thing because newer is always better, right? But Paul is reminding the church, our goal, the goal of the church as a whole and individually included in it, is to be conformed into the image of Christ, not to be creative. Paul actually tells the Corinthians, when he writes from chapter 11, verse 1, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And what Paul is trying to tell them is, you're not going to see anything in me. At least that's my hope. My intent is that you not see anything in me that you haven't already seen demonstrated in the life of Christ. Because my goal is to conform my life to his. And he says something similar here in our passage this morning when he talks about the example given to them by himself and Timothy and Titus. He says, we gave you an example and did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. He said specifically, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it, and we put in extra time so as not to be a burden to anyone. And the reason Paul is saying this is because he understands that burdens become a barrier to the gospel. Being a burden attracts attention to yourself, and it takes the focus away from Christ. The message of the gospel is just the opposite. What do we see in the gospel? We see Jesus taking our burdens upon himself so that we might be a recipient of his blessing. That's the gospel. A life of self-sacrifice is what conforms into the image of Christ. That's what we are called to follow. That's the example. You see, when I become dependent upon others, it means that I am not fully trusting in Christ. Only by trusting in his provision, relying on him, can I then be free to serve the needs of someone else as more important than my own. You see that? When I depend on God, I don't look to others to satisfy the the deepest needs that only he can fulfill. Only when I am content in Christ can I then go and serve the needs of someone else. Paul is saying it's really simple. If you don't work, you can't eat. 
It's just kind of an easy math problem, right? If you don't work, you can't eat. In other words, don't live your life expecting a handout from someone else. Being a disciple means you are a person who has discipline. It's part of the name. It includes discipline and and order. And, And as a Christian, we are called to keep ourselves distant from people of compromise. That's what he's telling us. Let's look how he continues in verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. So here, Paul turns his attention from the community at large to specifically the people of compromise within that community. So I want us to think about what exactly might be happening here. We see the outcome of their behavior. That's very clear. It says they're unruly, they're idle, they're undisciplined. Paul even goes on in our passage in this verse and calls them busybodies. Another way to describe the same thing is a troublesome meddler. That's what that word means. How many of you have ever heard the saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop? Have you ever heard that? Well, that's precisely what's going on in this situation. In the absence of full devotion to Christ, they have fallen prey to the schemes of the enemy. And Paul describes this to Timothy when he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13. He says, "...and the same time they also learn to be idle, as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips." And here's the word again, "...and busybodies, talking about things that are not proper to mention." So instead of staying busy, they're stirring up trouble. But I still have the same question. Why? We see the outcome of the behavior, but what is the the motivation of their behavior? Why are these people choosing this undisciplined life? Well, we don't know for sure, but we have a pretty good idea of some possibilities, and I want to share a couple of those with you this morning. I think one of the very real possibilities of what may be going on here is an issue of spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy. You see, Paul has taught at length, has he not, about the promise of the Lord's return. It's all throughout both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. He said, those who belong to Christ will not endure God's wrath. Whether dead or alive, whether asleep or awake, we live together with Christ. That's a promise. As I said in an earlier sermon, based on what Paul is saying here, we can't lose. This is good news. Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in, found in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are eternally secure in the faithfulness of and promises of God. But listen, those truths should never become an excuse for being lazy. We shouldn't sit back and wait for Jesus to return because nothing in this world really matters anyway, right? That's not what Christians are called to do. I would liken it to someone who's inherited a massive amount of money. Let's say so much money that they really never have to work another day in their life. And so they don't. They don't work another day in their life. Instead, they take all the things that could be a blessing to others and they use it for selfish gain. 
living in the riches instead of sharing the wealth. Well, in a similar way, I think we can have the same attitude towards the the riches that have been lavished on us in grace. I read that in in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. All the grace that has been lavished upon you. We can take our spiritual wealth and use it as an excuse for selfish behavior. Claiming God's promises. Seeking God's provision, but never really looking outside of ourselves. Benefiting from the ministry of the church, but never really being involved in the church's ministry. Living in the riches, but never sharing the wealth. The issue could be spiritual apathy. And I think that's a very real possibility. But it could also be a cultural issue as well. I shared this with you in an earlier sermon back in 1 Thessalonians when we talked about in the Roman society this common practice known as patronage. Now, it was basically a hierarchy of social status where a patron became a benefactor for his clients. Okay? And as a benefactor, that means he might provide food, he might provide shelter, or some kind of financial support, and in return, the client would give him some service, some allegiance as one of his clients. And the more clients that a patron had, the more prominent he was in society. It was their way of showing prosperity within that culture. The more clients someone had, the more prominent they were, which actually benefited the client as well, right? So it's kind of a a win-win situation. The problem is that these relationships were always filled with compromise. Clients were expected to support the political positions of their patron. Clients were expected to follow the religious practices of their patrons. It was a social network used to gain social status, but it was a recipe for disaster. So Paul may be looking at Christians still involved in this cultural norm, and he's telling them, don't play that game. Don't be lazy and expect others to do things for you. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter. 4, verse 11, this is what he said. He says, make your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business. Work with your own hands, just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. In other words, Paul is saying, be recognized by your good deeds, not your social status. Because here's the reality. It was true for them, and it's equally true for us, and it is this. You cannot follow the social norm without ending up in compromise. Both then and now, you cannot follow the social norm without ending up in compromise. So maybe it was spiritual apathy, maybe it was cultural norms, but regardless of what it was, the result was an undisciplined life that became a distraction to the gospel. Instead of serving others, they looked to others to serve their needs. It was a life of compromise that led Christians outside the boundaries of biblical norms, and in many cases, in order to follow social norms. Look at how he continues in verse 13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man 
or that woman and do not associate with them so that they may be put to shame. And yet do not regard them as an enemy, but admonish them as a brother. So Paul now shifts his audience again. He's going from the people of compromise who he had just spoken to, and now he's speaking to the church large. And he's telling them, don't grow weary from doing good. Because you can imagine how discouraging it would be to live a life of faithful obedience and suffer because of it. The Thessalonians are going through all kinds of persecution. And then to show up on Sunday and sit next to somebody whose life is filled with compromise because they're always taking the easy way out. But Paul says this, don't let your commitment be influenced by the compromise of other people. Did you hear what I just said? Don't let your commitment to be conformed into the image of Christ, to be faithful in your obedience, no matter what struggles you may face, don't let your commitment be influenced by the compromise of other people. After all, we cannot follow God and follow compromise. We have to make a choice. It's one or the other. I think in many ways, Paul is taking the position of Joshua when he stood before the people and he said, choose today whom you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. I think Paul is saying something very similar here because he is speaking to the house of God. And he's telling the community, the church body, to stand together. He's speaking to the collective community of the church. And he's calling on that community not to associate with those who claim to follow Christ, but their life is filled with unrepentant compromise. Which, when you think about it at first glance, it seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Don't associate with them. Separate yourself. Especially when he follows it by saying, with the desire to put them to shame. But don't miss out on the truth of verse 15. Because redemption is always the goal. These are not your enemies. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. But you're not doing them any favors by following them into compromise. Paul is not telling them to excommunicate these people from the church. Instead, he's telling them how to win these people back to the church. One of the things I thought of as I was trying to think through this was what we see in toddlers when they're growing up, right? When you are parents and you've raised a toddler, you know they like to be silly and funny and get your attention. You know, no matter what that is, they can make a little fart noise with their mouth. And everybody laughs. They think it's funny. And sure enough, everybody laughs and thinks it's funny. And guess what else they do? They keep making the noise. And the more you laugh, the more they make the noise, right? Until it finally is enough is enough and you put your attention towards somebody else or something else. And then they just go about their business and do something different. I think the same idea is going on here. Paul is telling the church to keep doing good and don't give your attention to those who are doing wrong. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul said, admonish the unruly. And he says precisely the exact same thing right here. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. So this is not like you're going to start out by ignoring them. In fact, you've done everything you know to pursue them. But they continue to compromise. And at some point, when someone continues in unrepentant compromise, you have to walk away. Like that little toddler. When you're not willing to give in and join in, 
then it's not near as much fun. The reality is it should be uncomfortable for those who continue in unrepentant sin to live outside of the support of the community. Continuing to do good is a way that you want to give them a reason to come back. And that's always the goal. Always, always the goal to win back a brother or sister in Christ who has walked away from the Lord. And keep in mind, this is, this is not a we're better than you, holier than thou kind of attitude. Instead, this is an invitation. This is an invitation to live a life that has been lavished by God's grace. And that grace is what motivates you to live a life worthy of the Lord. So that who you are and how you live and how you relate to people is a reflection of the one to whom you belong. So that everything about your life conforms to the image and beauty of Christ. That's what Paul is calling us to. Look at how he finishes out in verse 16. It says, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. As we talked about earlier, because of forged letters that create all kinds of confusion in the Thessalonian church, Paul ends this letter literally in his own handwriting. He, he, he gives his signature, so to speak, to let them know that this letter was, in fact, from him. And what he's telling them is that the presence of God is with them in all of life's circumstances. In fact, that's where the peace of God comes from, is knowing that the presence of God is with you in all things. That his grace is the single solution to anything you might face in life. We sing that in that hymn, Amazing Grace. His grace has brought us safe thus far, and his grace will lead us on. That's what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. So as we close this morning and think about our passage, I want us to consider how this closing command of Paul might actually apply to us. How does it relate to us in in our world today. The key to answering that question is to understand Paul's primary concern. His primary concern was with those who were breaking from tradition in order to pursue a life of compromise. They tried to walk in the social norm while still claiming to follow Christ. And yet, being a Christian, at least by definition, means your life looks very different than what you see in the world around you. And not just as individuals, this should apply to the church community at large. So with that in mind, knowing that Paul is speaking this to the church community, he's speaking to a local body just like us, I want us to finish up this morning by considering three uncompromising qualities of Christian community. And it's really simple. Gathering, growing, and going. These are three uncompromising qualities of Christian community. Gathering, growing, and going. In recent weeks, I've heard some suggest that our, our gathering together, kind of what we're doing right now, is really not that big of a deal, that they've really kind of enjoyed the uh, church on demand sort of thing where you can come and go as you please, you can watch in your pajamas, you can see it on Monday or wait until Wednesday. It's kind of nice, and perhaps that'll become a social norm, and that'd be good. Well, I need to tell you very clearly 
that I wholeheartedly disagree. The scripture is clear. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, Consider how to stimulate one another towards love and good deeds. And here's the key not forsaking your gathering together, as is the habit of some, and I believe will be the habit of many moving forward in our days ahead. But instead, encourage one another, gather together to encourage one another, and even more as the day draws near. So with all that Paul has said about the promise of the Lord's return, we are called to value our collective community even greater as the day of the Lord draws near, and each day we live is one day closer to that day. Corporate worship, corporate fellowship, corporate teaching are all a part of God's original design for the church. And his intentions have not changed no matter what is going on around us in the world. Our faith is not an individualistic pursuit. We are called to have a corporate witness in the world. Our gathering together is essential for our spiritual growth. And anything less is a compromise. But I want you to understand, we have been and will be continuing to be diligent to the recommendations given to us by our local and state and federal government. That's why we're doing what we're doing this morning. So this is not, please hear this, this is not a call to defiance, but it is a warning, and I do want you to hear that. It is a warning not to be comfortable with what we're currently doing, because it can't be the same forever. In fact, I hope that what we're currently doing, especially at times when we weren't able to come together at all, I hope it made you long for community because you just want to be back together with the people you love and live life with. Because that's the way it should be. Our hearts should long for that. The Christian faith is not a private affair. It is a collective commitment of the body of Christ. Gathering is essential to our spiritual growth. And in the end, spiritual growth is the ultimate goal. That's why we're here. Yes, God's grace has been lavished upon us. Yes, we are eternally secure in God's faithful love. But those promises should actually stir us to love and good deeds. But we all know this truth. And that is that knowing God's promises and living God's promises are two different things, right? We can know a lot, but not live a lot. And so what Paul is telling us is that spiritual growth means that you take what you learn and you apply it to how you then live. Lives that should look distinctly different than what you see in the world around you. Distinctly different than the cultural norm. This kind of spiritual growth is always, always, always a group effort. Stir one another towards love and good deeds. You see, the only way to avoid spiritual compromise is to see the evidence of spiritual growth. Because as soon as you stop growing, you will start compromising. The only way to avoid spiritual compromise is spiritual growth. Compromise leads us outside the boundaries of biblical norms, but that must always be a place that the church is unwilling to go. Christian community 
is marked by gathering, by growing, and then also finally by going. May we never be so content with the grace that has been lavished upon us that we just live in the riches and never share the wealth. May we be so overcome by things that are abundantly, exceedingly more than we can ask or imagine that we live a life that consistently and freely gives it away. God's mission is fulfilled through the collective resolve of the church, not specially equipped individuals. We have a corporate witness in the world, and our community should reflect all the goodness of what we believe to be true about our fellowship with God, so that when people look into the life of the church and they see the relationships of how we interact with one another, they should see the evidence of forgiveness and grace. They should see the evidence of joy and hope. They should see the evidence of freedom and redemption. All the things that are true in our relationship of Christ is made evident in our relationships with one another. If we want to avoid a life of compromise, we must not forsake our gathering together. We must be committed to spiritual growth. And we must be willing to go wherever the Lord leads. The collective resolve of the church is the antidote to spiritual compromise. I think Paul says something very similar when he writes to the Philippians. Listen to what he says in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves, and let me just tell you, when he says yourselves, he again is talking to the local body of believers in Philippi. So we can apply this to the local body of believers in Melanie Park. So he says, only conduct yourselves, Melanie Park, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, this is what I want. I want to hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what it's all about. And so with that in mind, I want to give you three questions that I would ask you to consider as an application to our passage this morning. And the first one is this. What does it mean exactly to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel? Unpack that. It is filled with riches of truth. Okay, don't look at them. Look at me right here. Eyes on me. Okay, that's the question I want you to consider. What does it mean to stand firm in one spirit? What's one spirit? What does it mean to stand with one mind? How how do you do that? What's one mind? How do you actually strive together for the faith of the gospel? What does that look like? Well, unpack that and decide what that looks like in your life. Then secondly, are there habits in your life that are outside the biblical norm that stand in the way of you fulfilling those truths? Are there things in your life that are outside the biblical norm, that stand in the way of you standing firm, striving together for the faith of the gospel? And then lastly, what is the next step of faith that you need to take to go where God is leading you? Not three days from now, not five weeks or next month, but right now, today, when you leave this place, what's one step of faith that you can take to grow in faithfulness in your commitment to God? So with that in mind, let's stand together and close in song. Well, I hope that what we sang just now is a reflection of what you heard communicated in our passage this morning, and that that really is your heart's cry, that it is a collective resolve as a church body to follow Christ.
I think it's interesting to consider how Paul writes these two letters to the Thessalonians, speaking uh, repeatedly about the promise of the Lord's return, but he ends with a command. Isn't that interesting? And I think he probably does that for a couple of reasons. One, he knows that in our humanity we are prone to comfort. And then secondly, we live in a world filled with compromise. And when those two things go together, it usually ends up in a bad place. And so he is reminding them as he finishes out, look, the Lord's coming back. That's a promise. And you will not endure God's wrath. And you can rest assuredly in the eternal security of who you are in Christ. But may that motivate you all the more to be diligent in your love for one another so that everything that is seen within the church gives evidence of the truth of Jesus Christ. May it be filled with forgiveness and grace of love and freedom, of hope and redemption. May we be a witness to the world around us. May we not grow comfortable. May we not be people of compromise. But we may be faithful to follow wherever the Lord will lead us. And we'll do it together because that's how he created us. So let me pray and then we'll finish up this morning. Lord, thank you for the promise of your return. We eagerly await that day. Thank you for the promises of eternal security in you, that that our security is not based on our behavior, but on your faithful promise, and we can rest in that. But as we rest, may we not grow comfortable. May we be stirred towards love and good deeds as we live within the community that you've called us to as a corporate witness to the world around us, and may our lives look very, very different. May they see in us the beauty of who we are in Christ, filled with love and grace that has been lavished upon us. And may we not just sit in our wealth, but may we share the riches with those around us. May we do that today. And we pray this in your name. Amen.